If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I've skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. Are we human? Do sheep's dream? It's raining in Los Angeles, cars are flying, and the owl is mechanical as we talk Blade Runner on this week's episode of Zach on Film. Okay, the plural of sheep is sheep. Whatever. <laughs> Can't change it now. It's recorded to tape. <laughs> Zach, did you even listen to last week's episode where we talked about technology and we don't record anything on tape again? Good Lord. Oh, no, that hey. was all visual. We're still on uh, audio tape here at Major Spoilers. I don't know about tape. Yeah. If you've I'm ever, Zach. If you've ever seen, <laughs> if you've ever seen the uh, Adam West Batman, like what the Bat Computer looks like, yeah. that's actually what our recording yeah, setup what, looks like. Actually, all punch card based. Yeah. We've been really influenced by like Jack White's setup at his house with his all analog recording. We're like, we're taking podcasting analog. Yeah. Gonna send old out, school. We're gonna send out wax cylinders to people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Buy I've heard of Jack Black. You can buy this week's Zach on episode on vinyl. I've heard of Barry White. So Zach Blade Runner. Yeah, ba- it's a Philip K. Dick story. Yes, uh, based on a Philip K. Dick story. Uh, Do androids dream of electric sheep? Yes. Right. And I I understand that you read the book. I did before you watched the movie. Before. So give us I a breakdown. It a, give a us a breakdown. One. Uh, yeah. Uh, let's give us a breakdown of the uh, of the book first. Okay. So we have our main character Drucker who is a bounty hunter in San Francisco in the year uh, 2021 that's just right point, in the corner point point of contention originally when I wrote the book it was 1991 yes but then the movie movie set it far in the future so they changed the book anyways it doesn't the matter far flung year doesn't matter 1991 so he is a he's a second string bounty hunter for San Francisco with a one bounty hunter in front of him this bounty hunter gets taken out by an android, a Nexus 6-type android mm-hmm. on Earth, mm-hmm. and Drucker must now go and take over this case of hunting down these six remaining androids and eliminate them. And then, as the story goes on, as he finds the androids, he's confronted with thoughts of, am I an android, or what makes what makes something human, and what, what is life? And What is life? Baby, uh, don't hurt me. <laughs> don't hurt me. <laughs> No more. no more. Beautiful poem. And so, I mean, it's a big. Uh, the Earth has been destroyed by nuclear war, and most of the population is now living on Mars in a colony right. where most androids are used as a slave labor, essentially. Mm-hmm. And they're not really supposed. They can be on Earth, but they're supposed to be doing work type things. They're not allowed Terraforming. to. Terraforming. Yeah, they're not allowed to yep. work amongst the humans and per- perpetrate themselves as humans. Mm-hmm. And so that's when he has to uh, administer a test to find out if they're androids or humans. And if they're android, he eliminates them. And he's confronted with the, the continuing moral dilemma eventually of not wanting to do these to the androids because uh, these new version of androids are becoming so sophisticated they can yeah. they almost can fool the Voight-Kampf test yeah. that they, he, they've been using. It's the new jelly bean version. Yeah. Uh, and so these androids can learn emotions 
and essentially can act and become humans. And they're actually, some of them are uh, uh, implanted with memories, so they actually believe they are human. But there's also uh, crazy entertainment, a television guy that's essentially on the radio and television all the time. Right. And <laughs> controlling people, kind of. And there's also a, a religion called um, Mercenism. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Uh, which teaches essentially people empathy because that's the one defining trait between humans and androids is that androids uh, have a hard time feeling empathy. So there are a number of books. Um, Philip K. Dick, just really a very influential sci-fi writer. Yeah, sure. Um, prolific. Very prolific as well. But a number of his books have been translated to uh, to screen. Uh, Second Variety was transformed into Screamers. Uh, Paycheck was transformed into Paycheck in 2003. John Woo directed that. <laughs> um, the Golden Man was transformed into the movie Next. Uh, the Adjustment Team was uh, turned into the Adjustment Bureau. That came out just a few years ago with... Uh, oh, I didn't know Dick Tom with, Cruise. Ooh, no, not Tom no, Cruise. That Matt was Damon. Matt, Damon Matt Damon in that one. Oh. Uh, the Minority Same. Report was the Minority Report. That's the one That's with Tom Cruise. Cruise. There you go. Uh, directed there by go. Steven Spielberg. Uh, well, we Can Remember It For You Wholesale became Total Recall. Total Recall. Um, yeah. Then, of course, we have Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is Blade Runner. Uh, Confessions <laughs> of a uh, Crap Artist, which was Confessions of a Banjo. Uh, Radio Free... Um, what is that? Uh, Albemuth became... Albemarle. Albemarle. Albemuth. Uh, and then a Scanner Darkly was a Scanner Darkly with um, Keanu, Keanu Reeves. Reeves in that. And uh, Robert Winona, Downey Jr. And Winona and Ryder. That was actually, you know, that was a really good movie. I mean, a lot, of, really people, a lot of people look at that and just like, it is, at. makes no sense, and it's... Uh, yeah, and people was, complain uh, about the animation Well, that's style. the Richard Linkletter uh, did that one, and mm-hmm. so he had done that previously in a movie and was doing that same kind of weirdness yeah. with it. Mm-hmm. But it's a, when you... If you make it all the way to the end of that movie, suddenly there's this huge yeah. revelation that you're like, "Oh my god, oh, I really, this is wonderful." I really enjoyed it. The yeah, one thing, the one thing that you may have noticed as you watch the movie Blade Runner, though, Zach, yes. is that most Philip K. Dick books don't translate into the same story that you see on the screen. Certainly not. And as I finished Do Androids from Electric Sheep. Because after there, I should also point out that there's a uh, word for word comic book adaptation that Boom Studios put out. It's oh, like wow. 36 issues long. That's cool. Uh, that they just took the words Philip K. Dick's words of text and then uh, sure lots of text, text boxes, boxes yeah. and then they just uh, illustrated it. So you might want to check that out too. I can send that along. To I you, know so. uh, as I was reading uh, Dick's novel, when I got to the point when the last android is put down, I mean they're still not called Roy Batty in the book, is he? Uh, no. Nope. He is not. He's called uh, what's his face? Yeah, which his is head. really hard Something to pronounce. Something Beatty, I think, isn't it? Or Bates? Bates? Bates is his last name. Uh, but there's still after he he kills Bates in the book. There's still like 20 pages left. And mm-hmm. I was like, if they do this ending, oh man! So how did that would have been awesome? How did it end in the uh, in spoilers? The, yeah, this is a big spoiler. Yeah, probably. How did it end in the book? Fill us in. The book ends with Drucker finishing his job. Eliminating the androids, and his he had a feud with Rachel before he did this last one because uh, she slept with him in hopes of him not going after the androids because she's also an android. Uh, that didn't work on him. He goes and does his job. She goes to his apartment and kills the goat he had just bought. Mm-hmm. And so, which it, this is not addressed in the movie. Blade Runner is a very big part of the book that most of the animal life on Earth is now gone due to these wars and having an animal is a status symbol, a huge right. status symbol. And if you can't afford a real animal, because most of them are extinct, you get a fake electric animal. And, mm-hmm. and Drucker better. has had a electronic sheep. Right. And they kind of touch on that in the movie because you see there is, when he goes down to the marketplace where he goes right. down to see all the uh, the droid builders mm-hmm. in the marketplace, you see all those animals around. Right. And, and that's the, kind of the touching owl, on that. And there's right. the owl, which was in the book. Right. Um, but she goes and kills his goat, which he had just bought with the 3,000 he killed from killing the first three androids. Mm-hmm. And he went and bought this insanely priced goat, and she went and killed it, mm-hmm. knowing that was his, like, big thing. Um, he then feeling horrible about everything because still because he had this moral dilemma of killing androids flies in his in his vehicle 
to the border of Oregon mm-hmm. and eventually comes one with uh, Mercer and with the religious symbol who was actually proven fake. But and then there's this whole religious element of do you believe what your <laughs> beliefs are, even if your religion is compute <laughs> fake or whatever? Right, right. I've just, read the book and this is confusing. As <laughs> it, the, the, the book is confusing and then it ends with him going to bed. But you forgot about the, the frog. Oh, yeah, he finds a frog. Yeah, yeah, he a real frog. It, yeah. No, it's not real. He thinks it's a real frog. He thinks it's a real frog. It's the last one, mm-hmm. but it's fake. It, it's a, it's a, a, a fake it's, frog. It's and how, then, how, how and the then frog he goes to out bed. That yeah, then he goes to bed, which almost kind of ended the movie in the first draft of the script. I, with a I, turtle. So we are watching the 30th anniversary version of this movie, also known as the final cut of this movie. Yeah. And I watched this uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I tweeted out, I am so jealous of you being able to watch this movie as the first time you've ever seen anything with Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. Because there's like three or four different versions of this movie that have been released previously. Seems like every five years or every seven years (laughs) they were releasing a version. And the final cut, as a true final cut, if that's really what it's going to be, I think of all the versions of the film, this is the best version of the film. And from what I understand... And that goes into... Go ahead. Oh, from what I understand, the theatrical version had a lot of uh, voiceover narration. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in just In a, which I think, yeah. cutting that... Well, well here, here's we the, get into it later, so, but I think it's... Yeah, a good uh, well, let's just talk about that real quick okay. right now. So, in the original release, uh, the studio... And again, this is the problem when you have... People who think they know what they're doing, mm-hmm. uh, and they think that because they're the head of the studio, they understand every genre and every everything that goes on, and so they want to have their hands and everything. And they right. watch, and they were confused, and they really just said, "We need to have this voiceover done." And Ridley Scott didn't want to do it. Harrison Ford didn't want to do it. In fact, his voiceover was recorded while he was extremely pissed. I mean, he is oh, angry nice. while he's doing this voiceover, and it's slapped on top of the movie and you know for the first time that i ever saw the movie i remember um my dad went to go to the the theater to see this by himself mom stayed at home with me and my sister and he came back and was trying to tell this story and he was like it's really weird and it's 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 really kind of fascinating and all this stuff and i was just listening to him tell the story said someday i'm gonna watch this movie and then when i watched it i was like oh yeah this is really cool this is really neat and i always thought that you know the the voiceover is Okay, but it, it mm-hmm. doesn't seem to fit right. And it's because it was slapped on afterwards. And there's this uh, weird kind of thought process that goes on is movies that have a voiceover tend to be not very good movies. Hmm. Because you have to add that voiceover on as a way of explaining to the audience what's going on on right. the screen. And I think in the case of Blade Runner, it the voiceover hurt the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was in the well, original draft of, of the, or the original release of the movie had the, the Harrison Ford voiceover. What were you going to say, Matthew? I can tell you something. In 1983, my next door neighbor had HBO. And this was kind of a status symbol when you're you know, 12 in the 80s. And one of the movies that we saw was the, that cut of Blade Runner with the voiceover and the Wayne and the Glavin. And I will tell you right now, I watched it when I was 12 or 13, hated it, hated every inch of this movie back to front. And part of that was because of the way that voiceover felt like it was kind of dragging me through things. Like in right. a, if you read a comic book, well, you'll see you, – you don't want a comic book where the panel says, and then Rodrigo leapt from his chair, and then you see the picture is Rodrigo leaping from his chair mm-hmm. with a thought bubble that says, now I shall leap from my chair. But – That's the way it felt. In a def- and I don't like the voiceover. You know, I don't like the voiceover. But in defense of the voiceover, if you think about a detective tale, mm-hmm. oftentimes sure. you have that voiceover mm-hmm. going from it. Well, in the detective movies where you have that voiceover, it's usually – the cheesy purple prose right. yeah. detective story. So, I mean, this is kind of how it came across. Um, there was also a different ending uh, of the in one of the releases where he and Rachel end up flying off. And there's this whole scene where they're flying up through the Oregon or northern California, the northern mm-hmm. part of the country. And he's explaining how they escaped and hoping that um, um, what's his face? The other cop. 
Edward James almost. Edward James almost wasn't going to follow them. Gaff. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's all removed from this. Yeah. Right. There are and some that things. Was actually from an entirely different movie. There are some things that are added. No, the the unicorn is from a different uh, from a different m- movie. Them driving north is from that. They had to go back and shoot that. Um, the unicorn sequence was almost taken out. In fact, I think in the first release of the movie, it didn't have the unicorn bit in there. But in the final draft, there's that scene where Harrison Ford's at the piano and he just kind of has this flash of this horse or unicorn running through the forest. And you're like, oh, that's an interesting, makes no sense bit until you get to the end of the movie and he's leaving and they see the little unicorn origami that Edward James almost left behind. And... This was really the, I mean, you kind of brought it up already, but this is the big thing in the story that still has people talking today of, in the movie, is Deckard a replicant or is he a real human? Right. And there are some things that have also changed in this release, too, because there are at least in in the the videotape versions that I had, um, there's at least three instances where Harrison Ford's eyes flash red. Right. Like Rachel's do, uh, Rachel's do whenever uh, she's in the low light, that people are like, "Look, look, that that mm-hmm. proves that he's mm-hmm. a replicant." And then, of course, with the unicorn on the uh, origami, it makes you believe that uh, Edward James Almost's character has the printout sheet and knows, knows what what memories. what memories he has implanted. Yeah. And it's really kind of a fascinating discussion of whether he's yeah. really a replicant or isn't he? Is, Rodrigo, is he a replicant or isn't he? I think it's more compelling if he is. Um, but I think he doesn't have to be in order for the story to be interesting. Right. I think, you know, when we get to the end of it, he's already asked all the, all the, all the important questions, you know, is like, mm-hmm. what, mm-hmm. what doth life? What right. is, what is, I'm, what is I'm human? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> what's this life for? Yes. Is this the what's, real life? Is this just fantasy? Right. What's this thing called love? No. What's this <laughs> thing called love? Sorry, I get those confused. Um, so, uh, to me, it's not terribly important. I mean, it's it's the sort of thing where it's like, oh, yeah, there's all these things that point to him being one. Mm-hmm. But there's also, you know, it's like, also, they could just mean nothing. And just the f- the important thing is that the replicants themselves throw into question right. what it's like to right. be, what it, what it means to be human. Right. So, whether he turns out to be a replicant or not, you know that he's already thinking about that. And and in the end, you know, the the decision that he makes is kind of yes, it does make you human because he wants to end up with Rachel, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And also, he is not unlike the replicants, uh, the Nexus. What are they? Sevens or Nexus sixes, sixes. Nexus in sixes, the movie? Yeah. Um, they want to know what their end date is. And as right. a human, you mm-hmm. don't know what your end date is, right? right? And so he doesn't want to find out any of that stuff if he is indeed. But it, I think it's that seed of doubt which is planted in the audience's mind which is one of the reasons why this movie has lasted so long. Mm-hmm. When this movie originally came out, it was almost like Man of Steel. It's like almost a 50-50 split where half the critics and audiences hated this movie and half of the people loved this movie. In fact, it, it didn't in its initial release make back its its box office uh, numbers. Oh, wow. Um, I think it only made uh, – I'd have to go back and look – I think it was budgeted at like twenty five million. It made twenty two million or something like that in the box office. I am in no way surprised by that. Um, and you're right. I mean, it's from that standpoint with the movie that was released in theaters. If you compare this final version with the theatrical version, the theatrical version is inferior on all counts. Uh, I think it's more awkward, but I think that they both have one important thing right in that the question being asked is an existential question. And so answering that question in the film is completely antithetical to the nature of the question. So I feel like the original, the 82 version that I saw kind of pushed you a little more in the direction of maybe he's not, and the final cut version feels like maybe he is, but they both have that and maybe you're missing something kind of feel to right. it. So I think one of the most interesting <clears throat> things that uh, bits of pointing to he is an android is he never he never finds all of the, the right amount of androids 
that they're supposed mm-hmm. to be, mm-hmm. and that and that he is. The yeah, he's one. the sixth. He That's what a lot one. of people say yeah. that he's the sixth. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there were a couple of other things too that point. Yeah, that people point to that in the theater. Um, There's actually a really good um, analysis analysis of architecture and why he is an android if you watch it on vimeo well uh, oh yeah okay so we'll post that yeah um the other thing too is the androids don't really display a lot of emotion and deckard doesn't express emotion in this movie i mean he expresses the reaction of pain Mm -hmm. when he's getting his fingers crushed but you don't see him laugh you don't see him smile anytime anybody's cracking a joke you don't you don't see him really react except for that very stoic harrison ford type face and Uh, there's precedent for the um, androids not just displaying affection, but displaying affection for each other. Right. 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 And most importantly, the actual humans, the characters that we know are 100% human. And I don't know if this is intentional. I like to believe it is. All of the absolutely human characters are very amplified in their their peccadillos and their flaws and their emotions to the point where, you know, Larry Daryl Daryl. And his situation, every word out of his mouth is clearly the word of a human being who is very, very, you know, emotionally closed off and immature and you know, whatever you want to call that. But I feel like when we see a character who is clearly and absolutely human, they actually really work to make sure we know that, yes, they have feelings and they do this and they, you know, we see the one character nearly getting ready for bed. And then, of course, bad things happen to him. So why not uh, adapt the book, Zach? That's what I was really going to get into originally was this thing about adaptation and why mm-hmm. we ended up with so many different versions of this film. We've talked adaptation well, before, right, Rodrigo? On Zach on film? Well, maybe not Zach on film, but we've talked about adaptations from one medium into another Oh, sure, before. sure. If you listen to the Major Spoilers podcast, we talk about adaptations all the time because... Um, comic book movies have become really popular, mm-hmm. so we we've yeah we've talked at length about adaptation. And you want to bring anything to the conversation here? Yes, adaptation <laughs> is great. No, uh, I mean, uh, when you look at an adaptation, there are so many factors and so many people involved in the process that the odds of you getting anything that is similar to the original. Mm-hmm. Are, is actually really slim. Mm-hmm. You there are so many things that end up changing because people are like, well, this is too long or too short, or this is not going to make sense within the a hundred thousand minutes that this movie seems to last. It's a little long. I think Blade Runner is a little long, but mm-hmm. um, thirty years old or thirty years long. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there are so many steps along the way where things get changed or moved you know you have writers you have directors you have producers and there's just this cycle going back and forward where you talk about a movie adaptation where they look at it they change something the script gets sent back and by the end it may not resemble the original at all Mm -hmm. and sometimes it may be too difficult to translate something that's done into narration Mm -hmm. on Mm -hmm. the screen um it may be too difficult to take a high concept like what a a lot of what dick stories are and Mm -hmm. bring them down to a mass audience and make it a mass appeal uh Mm -hmm. topic Um, in the case of, you know, in the case of so many different versions of this film, you know, there was the theatrical cut, then you had a director's cut, then you had a 10th anniversary release, and then you had the final cut or the 20th anniversary release. I forget. Work print. Yeah. And then the final cut pro. (laughs) Um, but you know, there's this, there's this urge and this need to try to fix things. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you have ever done this where you've done a piece You've turned it in because you were on a timeline or a deadline, and then suddenly you go back and look at it five years later and you say, man, I wish I could just mm-hmm, go in mm-hmm. and actually tweak this. Or yeah. do you actually go back in and tweak them, even though it's not being, no. not being well, used again? no, because they're my school film projects, so I, didn't, I don't oh, go okay. back and reshoot anything. But I watch them and like, oh, do you not understand lighting? For your, the answer is no. <laughs> for your own personal <laughs> satisfaction, do you go in and say, no, for my own personal let me, let me go in and just tighten this edit up just a little bit, just to see, just for my own personal no, satisfaction? No, I never have. Okay. Never have. Some, some directors are that way. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly yeah. with, with when you look at Blade Runner, that's where you can really see the cases. I'm not really comfortable with how this turned out. And, of course, the director's cut that was released was not really the director's cut. Yeah. 
Um, uh, I, but, but you get this in, <laughs> eternal meddling uh, I, to try to make it better. And I mean, a lot of people, I mean, a good example yeah, is yeah, George yeah. Lucas is constantly meddling well, with his yeah, films. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Example. I, yeah. think, I think Ridley Scott, going back and releasing this final cut, is a lot different than George Lucas going back and changing Star Wars. Because Lucas was not happy or at least saw had technology advances like, oh, I can make these effects look better now because our computers are faster and I can go in and change this and it'll look aesthetically better. He didn't go in and really change the story besides Han, which major, mm. minor plot point, debate that, whatever. I think Ridley also went Harrison in, Ford. Yeah, mm, Ridley, right. Ridley, uh, he released the Final Cut in 2007, mm-hmm. which he could have went back and made those flying cars look crazy and awesome and all these cool special effects he could have done to change Except the city. Expand the city. No doubt. He could have expanded the city more and yeah. stuff. But what he went back and did is took out the parts that he, I think, creatively did obviously did not want to put him into narration and things. I think it allowed him to creatively change things, to tell a story that I felt, having not watched the theatrical, just understanding it and what the changes are, make a story more representative of the Dick novel. Because mm-hmm. I think the the cutting out of the voiceover allowed for a greater immersion in the world of Blade Runner. And there's a lot of tightening up of elements, too. I mean, Matthew says, oh, this is a long movie. It's actually it a lot. It's shorter, it's shorter than, than, than I thought than it was. Theatrical. It's like 158 okay. well, or something. You, yeah. So you it's also short. have to look at... Electric Sheep as a story is designed to be read by a single person at a single time and digested mm-hmm. at your own speed and your own pace. And there's a lot of, for lack of a better word, navel-gazing in that story that really would not make for exciting film, that no. wouldn't make for a movie experience because, you know, Deckard flipping out in the desert and seeing a hop toad. Yeah. While that could be a really wonderful epiphany moment, and I'm not saying that somebody couldn't make an incredible movie out of that. Hey, you want to you want to know how the original script ended? How the original script ends? Uh, kill the androids. Rachel jumps off of his building, committing suicide. Right. He is so emotionally wrecked, walks out into the desert until he can't walk any farther. Falls down on his face, looks up. There's a turtle on its back. Mm-hmm. And the turtle flips over on its own power. It begins to walk off into the sun, and then he stands up and starts walking back to Los Angeles. Now, was that also a Void Comp uh, question in the book? Yes, it's in the movie. Well, it's in the movie. You come over. Oh, it's in the movie, but isn't in the book as one of the questions. Mm, I think it might be because I remember when it, they read it on screen. I remember it's not yeah, really yeah. familiar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole flipping the turtle okay. onto its back thing. It's been forever since I read the book. It's probably been. And I actually really when I read that uh, ending years. in thirty years film noir, I was like, that would have been awesome. yeah. So, um, but they didn't do it. So, did you like the movie? Yes. How come? What What struck you as this movie is good? This movie is good because. It sucked me into the world of Blade Runner, and I have an example of why this is happening. So Blade Runner, and we'll get into this uh, later in editing, is fairly slow. There's mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. long cuts with very yes. cool soundtrack mm-hmm. music. Vangelis or... <laughs> yeah. So I'm watching this late Friday or something, Saturday, and I stopped about... Uh, 50 minutes in because I thought I'd fallen asleep mm-hmm. and I was like oh I don't want to fall asleep I'll just be watching anyway so I go to bed wake up in the morning I start watching it again and I realized I didn't have actually because I remembered everything up to the point like I never actually fallen asleep I'd just been like weirdly sucked into these mm-hmm. long cut scenes of the <laughs> mm-hmm. city and the music you, go, you were and I, and I just wasn't like in the world of earth i was like in the weird world of blade runner well it was happened when i read the book too because i was reading at like four in the afternoon yeah and it gets to a part where it's night i was like man it's really late here it's gonna be like 10 30 like my clock i was like no it was like 4 30 it's like <laughs> wow i got really sucked in well here's one of the interesting things i mean ridley scott is just coming off alien yeah and just people are wanting to oh, throw whatever projects yeah. at him and so he picks up and, and wants to go with blade runner and what he does with blade runner which i think is so fascinating is that the reason why you get sucked into this world 
is because he's exact on microscopic mm. scale as far as detail that goes into this movie. Yes, you do get the broad vista, uh, giant pyramid towers of, of the Tyrell Corporation. But when you're on the streets, the streets are dirty. Mm. When you go up onto the roof, the trash is where the trash needs to be in that world. The puddles are puddled where they need to be. The windmills are there. I mean, there's not, it's almost like the detail is, no detail has been overlooked in creating this world. And I think that's why it's so believable. Oh, agreed. Even though in the movie it's 2019, yeah. November. And boy, we're in big trouble if, if we haven't invented androids by now. And it's mm -hmm. 2019. Yeah, we're not going to get there. The corner. So I think that's one of the things that really draws you in about this world is the exactness of the detail mm -hmm. that is put into this movie. I mean, when, when they're running around in the, um, the building at the end. I mean, that feels like a building that's been abandoned for 50 years. Right. I mean, that's what I think sells this movie, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's a lot different than uh, Deckard, instead of walking around in a trench coat and, and whatever, as opposed to just walking around in flip-flops and a, and a tank top and making you believe that he's a, you know supposed to be this detective. You're brought into that world, and the, the world is fully realized the minute that you see the first shot on the screen. Mm -hmm. and, I th and I think that's one of the things that's really important. The other thing that makes this world, I think, work is that, and it's the title of a book that I recommended for you to read, is that we're taking a noir tale, mm -hmm. and instead of setting it in the 40s, like we've seen other noir tales before, like when we talked about uh, Maltese Falcon, mm -hmm. what we're doing is we're setting it into the future. So we get a future take, or we get a modern take of a noir tale that's not told from a traditionalist standpoint, even though... Everything in this film is done from a traditionalist standpoint. I mean, the dark shadows. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, how many times do we see the light coming through the window and we're either seeing part of the shade cutting off the face or we've got the Venetian blind effect going on? Pretty or, sure that's every scene. Yeah, every scene yeah. is just yeah. steeped mm -hmm. in this is, this is noir and this is the way we're doing noir. And to be honest with you, in this remastering of this, the blacks are black. Mm -hmm. They're not washed out like... The VHS and the DVDs that I had uh, from years ago. You have ago. to adjust the tracking. Yeah, that was the worst yeah. part. But I mean, the blacks are black, and there are yeah. some moments in there where I'm looking at this, and it just clicks in my mind of, this is what this film should have been like. Yeah, but by setting it that, you know, that 20 minutes into the future, there are visual elements that are still very retro. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. if you look at, um, oh, God, what is her name? Sean Young's haircut yeah. is very, mm -hmm. very Betty 1980s, Page, 1945. Yeah, yeah. And the abandoned building that looks abandoned looks like a building from, you know, the 40s and the 50s. Mm -hmm. right. The things that we see, the things that we run into, have all of Deckard's uh, wardrobe is futuristic, but futuristic in a way that evokes the, you know, the Maltese mm -hmm. Falcon, the, right. the Humphrey Bogart movies that we know. Retrofitted everything. Yeah. Yeah, they, they give you the visual cues that, that your brain is like, okay, I'm 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 reading this and I'm feeling this in the you know the same way that I have seen these elements played in different stories in different places, but by putting it in the future, they actually take out that that worry of when does it take place, right. and it kind of feels like a, a future and the past all at once. Yeah, more they, ambiguity. They actually actually shot it on the Maltese Falcon set. Oh really? Oh, yeah, no, cool. they, they I, took it and they just threw I, all the. Uh, I do have one thing to say about Ridley Scott cinematography. What's that? And Stephen and Rodrigo and I have been doing a podcast together now for about 520 episodes, mm -hmm. probably six years. And over that time, we have nudged and needled and played with each other and gone, "Ha ha, you're bald. Ha ha, you're fat." And then we're like, "Oh yeah, Rodrigo's just just goddamn delightful." <laughs> but my mother uh, thinks so. After watching the 345-minute cut of Blade Runner, <laughs> I want to tell the two of you, my friends, my compatriots, my colleagues, that I don't ever want to hear a single goddamn joke about my lens flares ever again. <laughs> oh, I'll make at all the jokes no, I want. No, at no point going forward are any of us allowed to make fun so, of my lens flares because the answer there, is Blade Runner. No, there's a difference, and there, and there really is a difference in – what Blade a lens runner. flare is and what Matthew does with lens flares, mm -hmm. right? A lens flare is a mistake or a flaw of light entering the lens. And when we look at a lens, it's composed of many different elements. So when you have light entering a lens at a particular angle, it will bounce and reflect and refract and, and do all sorts of things inside. 
And so you will get those light streaks with many cheesy light flare effects. You will see them just helter skelter everywhere with no real purpose or point. Motivation. With no real motivation. Um, When you shoot with a 35 millimeter prime lens, that's where you end up with these brilliant blue streaks streaks of light. And it's it's very beautiful in that case with a Mm -hmm. lens flare. And there are some ways that you can mimic those kinds of lens flares uh, on the screen. So, yes, Matthew, when we talk about lens flares, there are motivated lens flares and things that come naturally from the light entering that lens. And then there are people who really just think that it's okay to just throw a lens flare anywhere. And I'm talking about... Um, Think about post. Yeah, I'm just talking about post-production where people are just like, well, let's put a lens flare here and let's put a lens flare here. And every light bulb and every candle has to have a lens flare. And they're really not thinking when they're creating the lens flare, where is, why is that lens flare being created? They're just like, oh, let's just put a lens flare there. And a lot of people, a lot of people fall into this mistake. So So tell me why there's a lens flare in 80% of the scenes in this film. Uh, I think there's a lens flare in 80% of the scenes in this film because we are replicants too. (laughs) And we are seeing the light as interpreted through the lens. That is what Ridley Scott is telling us with his use of lens flare. Yeah, there really aren't that many as there aren't as many lens flares. Film degree. (laughs) Boom. Boom. Drop the knowledge on your punks. The very first scene of this movie is lens flare a palooza. There are lens flares everywhere in this film. And I will accept Rodrigo's theorem because it's A, cool, and B, actually sounds legit. But I do not believe for a second that all of the lens flares and the light coming through the windowsill with the Venetian blind, I don't believe that that is all motivated. It is possible to overdo lens flares, obviously. Um, I've been watching uh, Fringe recently, Mm -hmm. a a, uh, J.J. Abrams joint. And that man likes his lens flares. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't he yeah. shoot with a on Super Eight? Didn't he shoot with a set of lenses that created lens flares? Like there way, are some unnaturally. There didn't... are some processes, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about. Most a lot of lenses are well, all lenses are coated, yeah, with different chemicals to reduce flare, to reduce certain chromatic abrasions, to you know just generally enhance the picture as it's going or the light as it's going through the lens. You can go through processes where uh, there's a company in California that will uh, modify lenses and remove a lot of that coating so that it adds more lens flare or just adds more flare into the shot. So yeah, there are things that you can do with that. Um, But uh, yeah, in this case, the lens flares, Matthew are are motivated. So I don't believe that they all are, but the lighting uh, in some cases, Matthew, lens flares are just unavoidable. Yeah. You know, this is just the what the effect of what happens when light enters the lens, and you can't mm-hmm. remove them. And so they're just there whether they're motivated or not. I think um, that, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this film. And don't get me wrong, it's visually hypnotic. I got about an hour into this, and I was just like, damn, I can't look away. But, you know, then there are four more hours of film to watch, too. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a point where an entire conversation is taking place heavily shadowed with the light streaming in from outside. And I get that. And then we go outside and we get that, you know, a similar effect or that same effect. And for me, it felt like there was almost a sameness to the fact that almost every single scene had either unusual lighting or the heavy use of the shadow or the lens flare or the streaming light streaming through the Venetian blinds or a very heavy, bright light source just right out of frame so that everything, you know, shadows off to the left. It, it, it comes to a point where I'm kind of like, you know, I, I felt like it, it, there was an attempt to really, really, I don't even know I how think, to You know, that's, that's think, interesting, though, yeah. because, I mean, I wasn't, I, I honestly didn't pay that much attention to each individual instance of lighting. It would be interesting to go back. I mean, Matthew just described, like, four different techniques mm-hmm. or, or, inc- mm-hmm. or, you know, incidentals, basically, of, mm-hmm. of that process. So it would be interesting to go back and look for them specifically to see if they actually are motivated. If, you know, you see lens flare when the replicants are around, 
if you see light through the Venetian right. blinds only for Decker? Well, you know, you don't do that. Don't do that necessarily. The lighting is is definitely motivated based on time of day and based on the location of where they are in the city. Uh, and as you get closer to the um, to where Deckard's housing is, a more populated part of the city, there's more light outside that's motivating it. Mm-hmm. A lot of this takes place at night and, and on very cloudy, overcast days. Right. Uh, so there's very few times that when the sun is shining through and the times that it is shining through, it's late in the evening, late in the day. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so you are going to get the, as a way to get the lighting that you want, it takes place at that type of the day with, during right. the golden hour. Golden so you're getting those, kinda, getting those kinds of uh, effects. Um, when you move to, um, the, the toy maker's house, mm-hmm. then you are more into a more rural area. And so a lot of the lighting is drawn by the, uh, patrols and the, um, advertisement balloons that float mm-hmm. through the city with the giant spotlights that swing through mm-hmm. the city, creating specific light effects that way. A lot of it ends up being backlit a lot of the times which in that case draws out the rain that's constantly falling both mm-hmm. inside and outside of buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a way that that's motivated from, from that standpoint. I, I think that a lot of the lighting is just, uh, I mean, it's very heavy stylized, but the world of Blade Runner is a very heavy stylized one. And so to not continue to make the outside world influence on all interior scenes where, I mean, mm-hmm. all alleys and buildings are just coated with neon signs. Right. I mean, that's mm-hmm. going to affect um, what what you're seeing inside your room. Mm-hmm. So I feel like a lot of the lighting is not just style, but really just world building. Mm-hmm. The, um, the book that I had mentioned that Zach should read is called Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner by Paul Salmon. Um, this is a book that is fascinating in... I don't think you could get a book like this. Uh, it was a, he was a writer for a magazine, mm-hmm. and they wanted to do an article that showed a true behind-the-scenes look at the production of a movie from beginning to end, the whole process. And for whatever reason, the studio, Ridley Scott, everybody up and down the line were just like, sure, we'll give you complete access to the entire production of this movie. So this guy was involved during the casting sessions. He was there observing wow. and taking notes. He's got notes on how they originally didn't want Harrison Ford, and then they mm-hmm. got Harrison Ford. He was there for every decision-making meeting, and Ridley Scott was like, sure, sure, come along. This will, you know, could talk to cast and crew at any time. Wow. And over the course of the making of this uh, movie, he was writing stuff for Omni Magazine, and he was writing stuff for some a couple of other magazines where he was publishing articles. And then finally, after the movie came out, he was able to release, I think in the magazine form is like 125 pages. Well, oh. 10 years later or whatever, however many years later, he was like, I've got so many notes and I've, you know, even that magazine article wasn't complete. And so this book goes through, not in a very dry way, um, cause it's very engaging, but it goes through every single part of the making of this movie, why they did things the way they did, why decisions were made the problems that they had with cast and crew mm. in brutal detail. I mean, this is stuff that today the studios would be like, no, don't, don't include mm-hmm. that. But he's got that kind of access. I guess there was a strike or something going on at one point. It's been about 10 years since I've read this book. Um, but, uh, yeah, well they, there was a threat of a director's guild strike. Right. So they had to, f- they had to make sure to wrap filming before the supposed start date. So they wouldn't lose Ridley off the film. And so they were going way over hours on yeah. stuff. So they were going beyond a, a normal day is 12 hours. Um, time and a half is up to 14 hours. And then after that, you're on double time. Mm-hmm. And they were hitting way into double time a lot of, on this production. Mm-hmm. And um, it was all night because they were filming at night. Yeah, yeah. So they were like eating their lunch at 1230 in the morning so they could continue filming all through the wee hours. I like that. Harrison Ford disliked the entire idea of a voiceover from the start, says Katie Haber. Uh, the, uh, he thought it was overkill and it was too over em- uh, emphatic and di- uh, disruptive. Ridley wasn't exactly committed to the idea either, except he kept waffling on the narration, partially because he wasn't sure what had been written was strong enough to support the demands placed on it. And so it goes into, you know, the whole discussion yeah, yeah. of the voiceover. It goes into all the special effects stuff that went on. And if people are really wanting to find a really good... Now, there's a difference between... Uh, description of how the film was made and an analysis of the film because mm-hmm. there have been analysis left and right on this 
Um, but this is, I think, probably the best book I've ever read on the making of any movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just fantastic. Did you read it, Zach? I have read a few sections. Of it. I couldn't read all of it leading up to the podcast, but I'm going to keep reading it because it's not, like you said, it's not like a textbook. Like, right, right. This is what happened this day. This, this is a, it's very engaging, and you get a huge swath of knowledge from everyone involved. Mm-hmm. It's just a really good read. Mm-hmm. So why don't we uh, we have some uh, people that help make this show yeah, possible? Yeah, wonderful people whose names are Terry. Gosh, dang it! I, I purposely made sure you had the <sighs> toughest names this week. I'm sorry, everyone. You're wonderful people. Oh, you're nice. you're allowed to spell and pronounce my name wrong for life. Carte blanche. Terry Ollis, Tan Jingming, Ivan Peterson, Brian Gan Gan Ganager, Christopher Hudspeth, Matt Lowe, Michelle Nielsen, Daniel. Jewison and Joseph Calarudo. Careful on that one. Okay. Thank you for donating to Major Spoilers. You're all wonderful, and thank you for helping keep all of our podcast goodness and sites up and running. You're awesome. Go enjoy VIP land. We love you. Oh, yeah, definitely join VIP land. Uh, get in there. Be a part of that. So from the special effects side, the editing side, Zach, mm-hmm. what, do you think about, uh, what do you think about that? I love the special effects for freaking amazing you know all that's miniatures is it really oh the whole uh the hades landscape that you open up in the beginning with the with the shooting flames and the pyramid all done in miniature oh wonderful there's a cool process um when you're working with miniatures uh the first thing is that you usually shoot at a different film speed Mm. um because you're wanting to make these miniatures look large and there's actually a formula that you can calculate based on your frame rate to show exactly at what frame rate you should be shooting at so that you could take this normal person who's walking along and make him seem like a giant on the screen just by slowing him down at the proper rate. Uh, But the other thing that you do to make um, miniatures look big is you shoot in a room filled with smoke or fog um, because naturally we have atmospheric haze and as things get further away, they start to fade in the distance. Well, when you shoot with a miniature, everything's in focus. It doesn't happen. So you have to artificially recreate that. By filling the room with with smoke, and they've been uh, doing that on Super Sentai for years. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and they've been doing this effect for years. I mean, it just didn't start with Blade Runner. I mean, they've been doing this since go back to the old World War II movies and, right. and before, where they've been mm-hmm. doing these kinds of things. So, um, and I would bet Metropolis probably did some of that too. Um, but yeah, using smoke uh, for miniatures uh, yeah. is real effective. You can also use smoke to um, shoot underwater scenes, to where you're not actually shooting underwater. It's called shooting. Uh, uh, wet for dry or dry mm-hmm. for wet and where it, because of the smoke in the room the submarine coming at you looks like it's underwater even though it's really just in a dry floor in, inside of a studio which is pretty awesome very cool yeah so uh, that's kind of cool about the special effects so yeah. just imagine wiring up the Tyrell Corporation with all these little LED lights and everything yeah, inside there awesome getting that's it and now you can tell in, in the original version um, the fireballs coming out of the uh, the refineries uh, were composited in, and you could see the mat in the VHS release. In this one, you can't see it. I mean, when I think when there's the, been some digital touch up. Well, that's what I was wondering, and I tried to look to see because when I looked at that opening shot, I was like, "Has this been recreated in 3D?" And right. I couldn't find anything that says that it had been redone in 3D. Hmm. Uh, I, I so that's how well the, the tweaking. They probably did some tweaking, but uh, certainly yeah, I mean, just the, cleaning I, up the but movie. But I think I think what it is is it is. I mean, it is a digital process by right. which right. they fix mm-hmm. things up. But it's not a like 3D rendering recreation of that shot. I mean, right. it is just right. They, they digitized the as close to they could as the original media. Right. I'm sure. But, you know, they, they did that same thing uh, in the closing shots of Orgasmo when they burned down the house belonging to Neutered Man. Okay. Noted. That was a weird sentence. <laughs> yes. Anyway. It, um, was, it was completely legitimate within the conversation we were having. We were oh. shooting miniatures in a smoky room. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, what else about the special effects did you, did you make note of? The cars... Getting up off the ground. The spinners. Couldn't figure out how they did it. Wires. Was it? What you do above? is you, you put, you mount the car Dang. on a uh, forklift. 
And when it rises up, you just raise the forklift and you shoot it from an angle that you don't see. Yeah, but they didn't the- do that because you can see the bottom in, in the cars. Yeah, yeah there, there's yeah. one where they're actually lifting it up with cables. Are they? So that police that police one yeah. where it kind of comes up and spins, that's all being lifted up by cables. Okay. And you just have or, to go in and digitally uh, paint those out. Yeah, that was good. You just um, hook those cables up to a forklift. The eyes were good. And then, and then raise the forklift with cables. Exactly. I didn't even think about that until right now. The eyes, those had to be... Which eyes? The Android eyes. Oh, that's actually just a, a natural. Just a practical? They just put like, I mean, contacts in or something. No, no, uh, no. Uh, you ever? Well, maybe not because maybe he's never taken a picture with film uh, or a flash. Well, you know? I have. If, if you take times. a picture with a flash and mm-hmm. it bounces off the retina just right, right your right. eye lights up red. It's right. that same process that they're doing here. So they were just they're just reflecting light off the back of somebody's retina, and it's yeah. and it's illuminating. Oh, so they're on, just directing the light right into their eyes. Yeah. I mean, I you, if, you, if you remember the owl, like yeah. the owl just has a light right on it, yeah. and it's that same effect. That's why one of its eyes always looks mm-hmm. like completely yeah, white, yeah. and then yeah. it turns around, and then the other one looks white. It's it's that. It's just bouncing. And, you know, owls obviously have, like, a, a ridiculous amount. Yeah. Of, yeah. 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 The really, the scariest part of the film for me is when Rachel's hair explodes about two-thirds of the way through, and it's just like, <laughs> she's got huge hair. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, so, well, it's, it's very Kristen humid. It's, 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 it's very Kristen's humid in Southern LA. California yes. during a, the apocalyptic that's, November. That's how that's how uh, lifelike these replicants are. That yeah. it gets a little bit humid and their hair goes crazy. Yeah, yeah you know how lifelike they are. Leon, the replicant that we first meet, I sit through this movie for like an hour, and I'm like, who does this guy remind me of? Well, he's that. Who guy. is this actor? But he's not that guy. He looks just like Daryl from Storage Wars. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh yeah. my god, it's, it's Daryl. <laughs> but yeah, that's a really good replicant job. Clearly, they took his uh, design from ancient uh, reality television series. Right, right. Rachel is a composite Kardashian. Yeah. Yep, and, and Daryl Hannah is, is that lady from Splash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Deckard is based on uh, the ancient hero Han Solo. Um. This movie has been super influential. Oh, gosh. Oh, God, yes. Multiple media. You can just see it. I mean, you just look at this film and you look at not only are there parodies of, you know, the spinners and the mm-hmm. flyover Los Angeles, but I mean, people have actually gone in and not lifted elements, but have used that as an influence for what they're doing. And it is referenced in a lot of places. I mean, if you want to find a brilliant reference to Blade Runner, go and look at Batman, the animated series. Uh, In the first season of Batman, the animated series, um, there is a Android uh, Hordak, I think is what the name uh, Hardak. Hardak is a supercomputer that realizes the best way to make things work is to build replicants of key influential people in the city, mm-hmm. including Bruce Wayne, Commissioner Gordon, et cetera, et cetera. And when they go to, when Bruce Wayne, Batman, sorry, spoiler, uh, <laughs> goes to investigate. <laughs> spoiler alert. He is the knight. Uh, when he goes to investigate the creator of Hardak, it mm-hmm. is a, and I forget the, the professor's name in, in Batman, the animated series, but it is voiced by the same guy who plays, the toy maker. Oh, the toy maker. Toy maker in this movie. Sebastian. Nice. Sebastian, yeah. And yeah. it's a brilliant piece of voice casting, just like when they did Adam West as the Grey Ghost. Brilliant piece of voice casting. But there is so much Blade Runner influence in that, or Philip K. Dick influence into that, that even mm-hmm. just that little voice character part mm-hmm. ties back into Blade Runner in that way. Totally. Yeah. The first thing I thought of, well, not when reading the book, but watching the movie was it felt like uh, Cloud Atlas mm. with Neo Soul mm-hmm. is really heavily yeah. influenced by mm-hmm. Blade Runner. Oh, just yeah, the yeah, world. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not, you, just the turn but the way Neo Soul looks, mm-hmm. and Neo Soul is flooded with water, right. but it's always raining in L.A. And it's it all felt, neon and yeah, dark. It feels a lot yeah. like futuristic. You know, if you look at a movie like uh, The Fifth Element, which is a lot brighter, there's still you can see a lot of Blade Runner in that. Yeah. Any, any movie that is set in the future... Uh, that yes, is not Blade like Runner. 100% Star yeah. Trek. But right. dystopian, but a dystopian, yeah, dystopian exactly. Exactly. Right. right, the dystopian crapsack future. And, you know, pretty much any comic book made from about 1983 to 1994 that didn't take place in that year 
has elements of this one type of, of thing. one of the characters in that book will be wearing Deckard's jacket. Exactly. Yeah. If you uh, Howard Chaikin's American Flag, if you look at the early Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, if you look at Frank Miller's Ronin, holy crap, you can definitely feel the influence, visually speaking, of this and a, a couple of other movies around the same time. Mm-hmm. But especially you'll see there, there's one um, Howard Chaikin series, Twilight, where one of the characters is an old school DC character. And he used to hunt androids, and he's wearing Deckard's coat. Mm-hmm. That's the visual cue of what nice. you're looking at. He hunts androids, and he's wearing de- the exact coat that Harrison Ford has in this film. So it's it's everywhere across all sorts of media. Yeah. And, I mean, just to see... Really, it's fascinating to just look and see how Philip K. Dick, this way-out-there author, mm-hmm. really has totally transformed Hollywood... And how we tell sci-fi stories today. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you look at Total Recall and you're like, that's based on a Philip K. Dick book. Or you go and see the Adjustment Bureau and you're like, that's based on a Philip K. Dick book. Or you're looking at, uh, 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 not Scanners, but uh, you're looking at that. And scanner like, Darkly. Yeah, and, and you're like, that's based on a Philip K. Dick book. I mean, they're so, I mean, sci-fi, you just think that that's sci-fi and it's all due mm-hmm. to Philip K. Dick. So. Um, you can go get his books in a number of different collections. You might you might enjoy reading some of his other books if oh, you enjoyed Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. And this movie came out like right after he died. Yeah. Which I think is kind actually, of awesome uh, and horrible all at once. I actually got to see the uh, Philip K. Dick Android at uh, the San Diego Comic-Con in 2006. They had him programmed to um, respond to like, 20 different types of questions. Mm. So he had some canned responses. And if you go up to him and say, Hey, do androids really dream of electric sheep? He would have, instead of just a one or two word, uh, response, he had like a three minute long description (laughs) of that. (laughs) Sadly, Philip K. Dick's head was stolen after the show in transit back to California, back to Hollywood. Wow. And they have not found Philip K. K. Dick's head yet. Wow. Which is fascinating. That head came to life and went rogue. It might have. right now under Disneyland with Mark Twain preparing to take over the world from under the Epcot Center. It uh, it was fascinating just how, how creepy, eerily, oddly accurate that 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 mannequin was that they mm-hmm. had at the show so. I, I wanted to ask it why the porridge bird lays its eggs in the air but i was afraid uh so zach um what did you get out of this film and and how's it going to influence what you work on next or in the future yeah definitely uh being very specific on what all is in your frame and making it all v- not necessarily important but all in like now so like an attention it, it, to detail yeah attention yeah. to detail yeah there we go that's better words. do you do you ever look at your class projects now or catch something on cable and just like how could we think that that was believable yeah yeah because it's like i i don't know of a good example hey we're having a party and, and it's supposed to be a loud party and there's three people in the room and there's no sound effects, no yeah. music to Darn conveys right. that there's more people outside of the frame. It's just three people sitting around going, "Hey man, how you doing? Yeah, shall we that. shall we go home and drive?" This is a great I, party. I did that. <laughs> I, done that. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I know. I was like, this this reference seems very specific to about three projects I did in college. <laughs> so what else? What else? Attention to detail. What else? Lens mm. flare. No. Well, lighting, 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 yeah, lighting. There it is, because that I think my favorite lighting scene is uh, the two cops looking at the um, uh, the, the, the the visual recording of the the oh, replicant yeah, yeah. killing the other mm-hmm. Blade Runner. I think that one, that just looked like future noir. It looked old noir, but right, like right. future noir because all the light was like blue and yeah, 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 black and white. Yeah. There's a lot of there's, there's a, a lot, lot of faces being lit by monitors. Yeah, yeah. There's just a lot of cool lighting throughout Blue the film. Hands. Well, that's what Rodrigo and I were talking about. Is it's like you look at Blade Runner and you're just like, wow, this is what happens when people who really understand lighting go to town. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's just like that's one thing that I always pay attention to more than anything is lighting uh, when I watch stuff. But it's something that I wish I was always better at. Oh, sorry. Just kind of uh, as because I was thinking of monitors. Something else that I caught while watching it that you can read uh, 
into the thing. Um, you watch the scene. The guy asks him questions about a turtle, shoots mm-hmm. the guy, right? Right. Any time after that that you see Deckard watching that, it's edited. It's yeah, like yeah. all mm-hmm. of the pauses in between are a lot shorter. So you can, you know, talk about the nature of memory and blah, 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 and all that stuff. Right. Um, because basically any time that you see that original scene, it's distorted in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just also wanted to throw that out there. We also, can talk about life. Also, thing uh, thing about one of the replicants... Same birthday as I do. Not the year. Nice. Same date. I think it was Rachel or Pris. Well, here's know. a question. Roy, Roy Batty. That I no, it wasn't Batty. It was one of the, one of the ladies. Pris. I, I have a question about Pris, this actually. film. What is it? You know what my question is about this film? No. What's Did up? they have to pay for all the product placement in this film? Um, Coke? Not just Coke. They're not the only oh, logo. There, that there is actually at one point up. this belief that there was a Blade Runner curse because... So many of the companies that were represented in the movie went out of uh, went bankrupt <laughs> within like five years of yeah. the movie being released. Atari, Pan Am, oh, yeah. Coca Cola like was going. Coca Cola like was Atari going through one. some stuff because yeah. Atari one seems weird. It's like, oh, obviously this is going to be the only video game system ever, right? Well, but it <laughs> it it does give you it does make Blade Runner seem like this alternate reality, right? Yeah. Where Atari right. never went <laughs> out of business. Mm-hmm. Atari killed and, all. But that's the thing. There was this at one time. There was this belief that if your company was featured in there, that you were going to be out of business. And three companies in a row just boom, boom, boom. And Coke went through a very shaky period. Right, right in the eighties. Uh, yeah. In the eighties, at Coke, the same time New with New Coke. Coke and everything with that. So there was this firm belief that <laughs> oh my god, you know, uh, I don't know if Commodore had a had a bit in there. Um, I don't know if they did. But, you know, they I know, went Pan, out of business. Pan, Pan, Pan Am was did. out. Uh, Atari was went one. out. And there was something else. Do a Cuisinart. search for... Cuisinart kept yeah. showing up. And do, I'm... do a search for the Blade Runner curse. And I'm sure you'll yeah. find out about that. But, I mean, there are a couple of scenes where the Coca-Cola billboard oh, is sure. center of the focus. Yeah. I mean, it, oh, yeah. it but, is our focal point of a particular scene. But they nailed it and, because that's, how, that's the way Coke is displayed now. It's just mm-hmm. well, yeah, I'm not saying that it's not. Maybe it's a my tail question was the dog. whether, yeah, Ooh. whether it was Coca-Cola saying, "Here's somebody." We should do no. I'm dog. sure. I'm sure it was. Um, I'm sure it was all product placement. I mean, because really, movies in the '80s just are littered with product placement, <laughs> mm-hmm. left and right, almost to the point where almost it's, as much as TV shows now, yeah, almost yeah, yeah. as much yeah. as Transformers movies. Yeah. <laughs> almost right, as one, much as that whole episode of Bones that was about, hey, everybody wants to go see Avatar. One more thing that uh, that you learned out of this, or something that you want to apply in the future. Editing. Hire James Hong. Yeah, James Hong before he dies. He's brilliant. Yet yeah. he has always looked the same. I know. Isn't yes. that creepy? <laughs> James that creepy? Hong has he, always been even yeah, in even he in he has always even been in Chinatown. 50, a fifty year old Chinese guy. Even yes, in Chinatown, he is he's, he's old. And yeah. Chinatown was fifty years ago. Yeah, pretty much. 40 at you least. know who we're talking about, right? James Hong. He was the, the uh, eyeball scientist. Guy. No, he was the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eyeball, scientist. eyeball scientist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Post dad. Recognize him automatically. Uh, it looks the same today. Yep. Also, uh, it's amazing. Also, uh, the guy from Big Trouble in Little China, the big bad there. Also, um, David Lopan. The, the, David Lopan. That's yeah, right. the the uh, Kung Fu Panda's dad. Yeah, oh, yes, yeah. yeah, I like him in that. Yes. And of course, he's a, he's a bit. Goose. He was uh, Seinfeld's greatest nemesis in the restaurant episode. Seinfeld? Oh, yeah. Seinfeld? And then, uh, where else has James Hong been? No, super. Oh, he was in, uh, what's the ping pong battle movie? Balls Uh, of Fury. Balls of Fury. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Same age. James Hong. Something else that that Zach might want to take into account that struck me, and it may just be that I'm a particular person for this because I'm a huge fan of the film works of Brad Pitt for one reason and one reason only. Because he's dreaming. Throughout this this whole (laughs) film, they're they're like, oh, could Deckard be a replicant? Could Deckard be a replicant? The man is constantly eating and drinking throughout this film. Hmm. Deckard, like six or seven times, you know, him with that opening sequence where he sits down and he's getting ready to eat. All throughout this film, Deckard is, you know, eating something, drinking something, putting something in his mouth to make you think, oh, is he real or is he a replicant that just thinks it needs to keep this up? It was it was fascinating to me. And I mentioned Brad Pitt because everything I see uh, Brad Pitt in, he's constantly eating. Like constantly throughout the Ocean's Eleven movies, throughout Fight Cub, all of these films, Brad Pitt is like obsessed with the business of 
feeding his face as he's reading his lines. Well, we so talked about uh, giving your actor something to do. Yeah. yeah. On, also, on also, Brad Pitt uh, doesn't dreamy. he doesn't eat and he looks in between movies. No. So he when he's do, when he's shooting him, yes, he only eats yeah. when he's shooting a movie. So and he just got done doing a really big set of squats and abs. So he's got to put the calories That's back in. Probably, yeah. Final question, Zach. Yeah. Uh, did your uh, girlfriend watch the movie with you? Kinda, but not really. She fell asleep both times I watched it. All right. <laughs> Great score, uh, Rodrigo. I I think he I think Zach definitely passes this one. Uh, oh, you know, definitely. in the past, he has come in and talked too much about the business outside of the movie. Um, I think this one was a good balance of you know stuff surrounding the movie, but also um, techniques involved as well as themes. I mean, the themes were front and center, which is something that I think um, uh, sometimes we need to we need to bring up a little bit more. But, I mean, and granted, Blade Runner slaps you in the face. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we should um, do a... Uh, this is thematically meaningful! We should do a bonus track of Blade Runner. Yeah. That'd yeah, be cool. interesting to sit down and just, you know, nail that one out. Yep. Can I come? Because I have things to say. Sure. Yeah, we'll let you know when we're doing that. Uh, <laughs> Ah, uh, Steven's a jerk. <laughs> what I just said, we'd let him know when we're doing it. I think, yeah, I think but I'm I shaking think Zach, my head. No, yeah, I think I think Zach did, did well this time around. Yeah, Thank Zach, you. I think uh, I think what you did on this one was because you knew you were going to be tasked with questions <laughs> that you went in going, okay, what do I need to know about this? What are these jerks going to ask me? You mm-hmm. watched the movie, you did your research, you followed up with books. I mean, this is. Uh, I don't know. This seems to be one of the first times that it seems like you're really interested in learning about this, about the movie that we're discussing. Oh, not saying that I'll, you weren't. No. That, but I mean, yeah. eager to, yeah. to jump in on this. Yeah, I would probably agree to a point in that. Matthew? Well, I would say that Zach gets an A for two things. One, Zach realizes that this is a favorite film of the head teacher and made sure that he availed himself of as much uh, information. Actually, is as he this could. is this one of your favorite films? I have uh, no, no idea. It's not one of my favorite films. I, didn't think I think from the and from the influential standpoint, it is a very nope. good film, but it's not one of my favorite yeah, I didn't films. Think it was Knowing one. how much Zach read and put into this, I can't help but give him an A because <laughs> I spent Something like 17 hours watching uh, Blade Runner. And I know that he spent at least 10 to 12 more hours reading and figuring out what in God's name the movie was about. You know so this movie is Zach 40 is minutes a. shorter than the last movie we watched, right? Zach well, gets 40 movies, movies. Blade Runner gets up man, 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 world. Oh, yeah. Well, that's... I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure the French Revolution was 40 minutes shorter than Mad 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 World. Yeah, the, uh, the Mad 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 World's opening thing was, I think, the Bronze Age. But yeah, the I give the movie the a years minus. I'm gonna give Zach an A because there are things in this movie that just drive me nuts. I will say this: I hated it less than I did in 1983. All right. There oh, you go, cool! Zach. Great. That'll uh, finish this episode of Zach on Film for this week. Make sure to head over to Majorspoilers.com where you can find the podcast posting page and comment to your heart's content about themes and lighting and did you think the movie was too long? Because I didn't. And <laughs> all that there. Also head to the main page, Majorspoilers.com once again and click on that Amazon.com link and go buy the 30th anniversary Blu-ray connect- uh, collection of uh, Blade Runner which features every cut of the film possible with bonus features and all sorts of goodies about 10 hours worth of stuff so much stuff and you can buy a blu-ray player to watch that on a big screen tv none of it will cost you any extra but a little bit will come back to us to keep this podcasting goodness coming into your ears week after week that's it for this week next week another movie with an ambiguous ending inception next week on zekon film the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long.